It's just not fair. You've heard it, I've heard it said, sometimes in anger, sometimes in desperation, sometimes in defeat. It's just not fair. Sometimes it's said with a final exclamation point of a slammed door and someone collapsing into another room in tears. The pain overwhelms them. It's just not fair. And it's true, we want justice, don't we? We have this sense that things ought to be fair. But how many times is it true? It's just not fair. Well, God made a statement to his adversary in the book of Job, and it's a statement we want to think about today. Have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, that's, that's God's question for us. And the issues Job dealt with, have you considered my servant Job? Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us here on Faith Is. This is the place where we develop confidence in God, where we deal with things head up, and where we try to answer the questions that we can answer. We learn how to live with the questions that sometimes aren't satisfied uh, by the answers that we have. Sometimes we struggle with them, but we can come to an understanding of what God is up to and what that means to us. And so that's what we try to do. We want to come to the point that we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And today we're going to consider this issue of fairness, of justice. We're going to consider it in the context of the life of Job. And we're going to ask some of those questions and answer them. Now, I have a pretty good idea. I can't prove this, that some people out there have been through some really unfair situations. Someone's betrayed your trust. Someone's turned their back on you when you needed them. Maybe you've had an illness that just knocked you off your game and perhaps was more debilitating than you imagined. Maybe you had an accident. You were driving your car, minding your own business, and out of nowhere, your life has changed. Maybe you slipped on the ice sometime in the winter, and now you feel the results of that painful fall. It could be anything. We wrestle with things, but I'm pretty sure a whole bunch of us wrestle with this idea of why isn't life fair? Is God fair? And so we want to take a look at that, and we will. So let's start with the story of Job, and I want to read a fairly lengthy passage because it gives us the story of, of Job in his time and his context, and it helps us understand and kind of set the stage for some of our conversation. I'm not pretending today we'll answer every question you might have or that any of us might have, but I want us to make some sense of this idea of fairness and how we manage our lives in light of, of both our assumptions and of the reality that God shares with us so that we can have confidence in him and we can have an understanding of what this business of fairness is really all about. So from Job chapter one, here's the story of Job. I'm going to read today from the New Living Translation. It just reads quite well, I think, and tells the story. I'd invite you to follow along on whatever English translation you prefer, but let's start with Job chapter one, verse one. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. 
he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. On to chapter 2. One day, the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before, before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. 
Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Well, that's the introduction to the story of Job. What follows that is Job's conversation with his friends. Sometimes we refer, refer to them as Job's comforters, but in reality, they weren't much of a comfort to Job. But they did have some robust conversations, and, and in some respects, their conversations are helpful. We're not going to have the opportunity to get into all of those today, but you might want to read them. It's some dense reading, but um, you may find it useful, and I, and I certainly would like to encourage you to do that. But before we leave the book of Job and begin talking about some specific things, let's finish the story. I want you to know how the story ends, in case you're not familiar with the story of Job, because that will help us think about all of these issues, and I don't want to... Um, to hold something back. And then you say, well, why didn't you tell us this? I want you to know the story of Job, and then we can kind of unpack a few things from it. And really what we're going to try to do in the next few minutes is just kind of think out loud together and to try to process some of these things that go through our minds, because isn't that what we need to do? We need to consider the things that, that bother us, the same as Job was hashing out the things that bothered him with his friends and, and later on with God. And so we want to, we want to wrestle with that a little bit. But at the end of Job, after, after Job has had those conversations with his friend, and after he's challenged God straight up, um, Job never, never sinned, but he had robust and, uh, how should you say, um, straight ahead conversations, no holds barred conversations with God, where, where he said to God, look, I need you to help me here. And uh, God gave him some answers. And, and then the story wraps up in verse uh, starting in verse 10 of, of chapter 42, and I'm going to read a couple of verses here and there, but I'm just going to start at verse 10 and skip a little bit and then, then finish it up. So God and Job have kind of reconciled their situation, and Job has been instructed, and God has chastised the friends, and Job's been instructed to pray for his friends. And so verse 10, the story continues. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. 
Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who had lived a long, full life. So that's the story of Job. It's a challenging story. I certainly agree with that. It's a rather deep and involved story. There's no question about that. I wouldn't pretend that it would answer every question everyone would ask, but it certainly gives us a context from which we can begin to think about this idea of fairness. And it's important for us to understand these stories. And you might want to go back and read at least that much of the story again, because as I've said before, so often the stories of the Bible just help us when we find ourselves needing some coaching from God, should we say, when we need some help having absolute confidence in God's trustworthiness. And the story of Job can help us with that. And we're going to unpack it a little bit. I've gotten a lot of thoughts on that, and, and I wish I was better at it than I am. But, you know, I, as a pastor, I've seen people go through hard times, and I just really want to help us have some sense of how to handle that and have some sense that we really can trust God and give us some, some uh, perspective on that, some reasons why God is trustworthy. And I hope we can do that today as we think about this together. So join me. Let's think about this. First thing I want to say is that it's repeated there in the story of Job that we read that Job is entirely blameless. That, that is repeated at least three times. I'm, maybe I missed one. I, I don't know. But it's entirely blameless, Job is. So, so none of what happens to him is Job's fault. Okay, we can't blame Job for something. It goes on to say in the, in the story of Job, the Bible tells us that he worshiped God. Now, what that means is he had a reverence for God. He respected God. It didn't mean he just showed up at church. Now, I encourage you to go to church every weekend without fail. Make Sunday the pivot point of your life so that on Monday you're preparing for Sunday, and on Sunday you're celebrating, and then you start it all over again you, you just have to make Sunday the pivot point of anticipation and reflection. And when you do that, you begin to orient yourself in God's direction. That's what Job did. He reverenced God and respected God. Summarized by that simple word that the Bible often uses, he, he worshiped God. So in, in context of here's a blameless man and all the trouble that he went through, you know, the questions easily pop up. And, and, and the first one for me, maybe for all of us is, is the simple question, is God fair? Or sometimes we say, is God just? We hear a lot about the, the idea of justice these days. And that word is used sometimes more than fairness, but it's really pretty much the same idea. Is God fair? 
That's a good question. Uh, we also we also have to ask the question, and and um, it, it's a challenging one. Does God run the universe on the strict principle of fairness or justice? You know, so so can we expect that when uh, something is done well by a person that they should receive good from God? Can we expect that someone does bad, that they're going to suffer immediate consequences? See, sometimes we expect these things to happen all at once. And let's just settle that right now. There is not immediate consequences, either good or bad to all the things that happen to us. Okay. I'm going to argue and you'll pick this up and you're not surprised that that this idea of fairness needs some explanation, but ultimately God is not unfair to us and God is just. And so we can, we can have some, some peace about that, some settled certainty about that, but to expect this, uh, how should I say, correspondence between evil and bad consequences and good and good con consequences or reward, that, that, that doesn't happen on that strict linear uh, timetable. I've often said, and I would say again, that one of these days, God is going to make all of the wrongs right. And that's the truth, and we can count on it. But it's not going to happen on my timetable necessarily or on yours. There are plenty of things in my life that I wish God would fix right now. Things that I've had to go through, and you know, by comparison to Job, I've had it pretty easy, I guess. But there are still things that, that I know did not happen the way that should have happened or the way that pleased God. And I live with that, and you live with that, and I trust God that one day all of this will be made right, and um, I'll understand it better by and by, as the old song says. So, uh, But don't expect this immediate correspondence here. And then, of course, the, the other thing that comes up is how do we explain this idea of suffering? Job's suffering, anybody's suffering. Can we make some sense of that? Can we make some meaning of that? And I kind of mentioned this, but let's make sure we get it right out there at the beginning so we, so we understand this assumption. Almost all of us assume that if we live right and do good, we're going to have success and good things are going to happen to us in life. In fact, way too many people, they think at the end of time when they stand before God, they're just going to say, well, God, I tried to do more good than bad, and, and so you should accept that. Well, that's not really un an understanding of, of following Jesus or of the gospel, but we live with that assumption, don't we? That if we live right and do good, good things are going to follow. We also assume that when people do evil things, when they sin, maybe when they do dumb things even, that they're going to have some bad consequences. Maybe we think of them as punishments to them. We just tend to assume that. Uh, and, and I'm not going to argue that that's right, but I think we need to surface that assumption so that we can challenge our understanding of, of God and his fairness. So part of beginning to think about that then is, since we all have this sense of fairness, where does that come from? You ever thought about that? Why do you have a sense that life should be fair? Life isn't fair, we know that, but why do we have a sense that it should be? Where does that idea even come from? Why do we have any sense of fairness? That, that, did you ever ask that question? Well, the, the answer is that that sense of fairness really comes from God, because it's God that has the idea that we should do good and not evil, 
It's God that tells us that one of these days he's going to make the wrong things right. And one of these days, the people that follow him are going to live with him forever in, in heaven. And the other people are not going to like the hot place that Bible describes. So this is where we get this idea of justice. It comes from God. And, and the important thing about this to, to think about is this idea of justice comes from outside ourselves. You know, we didn't make this up. You know, to have some sense of justice and how things ought to be fair, it has to come from someplace outside of ourselves. It's kind of like a ruler. How, how would you know how long a foot is if you didn't have a ruler? You have to have some objective measure. Then the ruler tells you how long a foot is, and it also tells you how long an inch is. In the same way, this sense of fairness comes from outside ourselves. And, and we need to think about that. Where did we get this idea? Because it's not really ours. And, and take that a little bit farther. If that sense of fairness comes from us, then we're judging everything on our terms. Uh, you can trust me on this. You do not want me judging everything. And you can trust me on this. I don't want you judging everything. See, our sense of fairness can't come from ourselves, and, and it doesn't help to say, well, everybody just knows. Well, everybody doesn't just know, because there are various understandings of fairness, and it doesn't take too long to discover that. But this basic sense of fairness comes from outside ourselves, and really comes from God. There's no other place for it to come. And so we need to kind of come to grips with our perspective on that and challenge that, because if fairness and the idea of justice comes from outside ourselves, then, then maybe that idea of justice needs to, to judge us instead of us judging it. But let's not go down that road right now. But you get the idea, okay? So, so continue on, unpack some of these questions. All of us would pretty easily ask from the story of Job, was it fair of God to let, God, let Job suffer? I mean, really, come on, God, you said he was blameless. Is it fair to let him suffer? I mean, he was innocent. So, so based upon our assumption that I just talked about, we would all say, well, no, it wasn't fair for God to let Job suffer. Hmm. Was it fair then? If it wasn't fair to let Job suffer, was it fair then for God to replace Job's losses in the end? You know, we don't, we don't usually get concerned about fairness when God blesses people. Sometimes we do, but usually we don't think about fairness if God gives us a lot of stuff we like, a lot of experiences, a lot of friends, a lot of money. You know, we don't think that's God being unfair, but, but could it be unfair for God to bless one person? And poor Job, at the beginning of his life, he had to go through all of that pain and suffering, all those losses. So, so when you think about was God fair to let Job suffer? Then you also have to think, well, was God fair to bless Job in the end? Where does this come from? You see, we, we demand justice. You know, that's, that's where it comes. And you hear this all the time, justice for, and you fill in the blank. And if you haven't heard it lately, you will probably again. And, and this based upon this common sense that I talked about a minute ago, that we all have of, of a need for fairness. And we demand justice because we think suffering should be matched by suffering. And usually the loudest voices demanding justice are those who have felt the pain most intensely. 
and they believe someone should feel that level of pain the same as they feel it. And that's what they mean by justice. But perhaps that goes by a different name, vengeance. Isn't it really vengeance if we are hurt badly, if we suffer pain of one kind or another, and we want someone else to suffer that same level of pain? Isn't that really vengeance? And doesn't that really reflect our assumptions that that good should result in good and bad should result in bad? And is that really an appropriate assumption since the idea of fairness doesn't originate in us, it comes from God? Well, we're asking a lot of questions, are we? Think we'll ever resolve any of these? Well, I think we will. But, you know, a lot of times we, we come to better understandings of things because we we need to ask important questions and, and answer those for ourselves in our own understanding. And as you've wrestled with unfairness, I encourage you to answer some of these questions for yourself and let them help inform your understanding and let God use those to help you relax and let go of some of that painful stuff. You know, we, we hang on to that pain when we don't need to. And so we need to to begin to come to better understandings about all of this, better perspective, so that we can let it go and we can live lives that God intended us to, to live. Because when we impose our assumptions about justice or fairness, aren't we really judging God? Now, you know, not too many of us want to think that, well, we're going to judge God. But isn't that really part of the question we're thinking about here is how could God do such a thing? And I don't want to judge God. I'm pretty sure most of you don't want to judge God, but we ought to be honest enough with ourselves to, to, to realize that's what we're doing. When we say to God, it's not fair. When we say to God, you need to do something about that. When we say to God, see that guy over there, God, get him. You know, that, that's really, really yikes. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're really evaluating God and telling him what to do. You see, we don't want to judge the same God who gives us our sense of fairness. We want to realize that, that the God who was watching Job and the God who said to Satan, this, this man, Job, he's blameless. In no small sense, God was saying to Satan that I have confidence in Job. God was saying to all of us, when we read the story, he was saying, I have confidence in Job. Remember, God said that Job was blameless, and he said to Satan, he'll be faithful to me. I don't think he used the word faithful, but you understand what I'm saying. That's clearly what the story was talking about. Uh, uh, God, can you put it in this sense? God believed that Job would pass Satan's test. God was cheering Job on go Job, you can do this. You got this. And he was saying to Satan, you, you don't know Job. I know Job. I can count on Job. And there's another thing we ought to think about. Can God count on us even when things don't go our way? Yikes. I told you this is tough stuff to deal with. Really, it is. And, and we need to think about that. Can God count on us when bad things happen? and we have to deal with them, and we have to trust him? Will we pass the test the way Job did? See, God is cheering for us. 
I don't have any doubt that, that God is cheering for us when we go through hard times, because God is not going to abandon us. We know that. We would all say that to each other. God is going to be with us, or God is with us. We can count on God. We would all encourage each other. So when we go through hard times, and when we have reverses in our lives, when we suffer in one way or another, remind yourself, hey, remind me that God has confidence in us, that God believes in us. He's looking down and he's cheering us on, wanting us to be faithful because he wants us to have confidence in his trustworthiness. He has gone to great lengths to demonstrate that he's trustworthy and he wants us to believe him. See, that's why we're trying to stretch in God's directions. That's why we're trying to stretch to God's high calling, because he has confidence that we can. And so many people think they can't. Well, if God has confidence in you, shouldn't you have confidence in yourself? If God had confidence in Job, shouldn't Job have confidence in himself? Now, but also this, we have a huge advantage Job didn't have. We know the story of Job. Job had no idea that there that there was this conversation going on in heaven. He had no idea that God was cheering for him. We have an idea because God is teaching us this is what goes on sometimes. Sometimes bad things happen. Now, I don't know whether God has, has allowed Satan to single you out. Um, don't, don't hear me saying that. But we all know that we go through hard times, and we have the confident assurance from the Bible that God is with us, and God believes in us, and he's not going to let us down. He's going to be there with us and for us, and we can trust him. In just a moment, we're going to take a break, and I just want you to, as you, as you reflect on how far we've come today, I want you to think about and reaffirm this idea that you can trust God. He is trustworthy, and you can trust him. We all can trust him. We'll be right back after this. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. It's the place where we work together, we share together to develop confidence in God. Because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to trust him. We're learning together how we can trust him, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. I am a pastor. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We have a great church and a great group of people, and they have happily helped support this program. We do it for you. We hope it benefits you, and we just consider it something we can offer to you to build you up and to help you have the confidence in God that we all strive for. So we left our conversation talking about Job and his challenges with the idea that that God believed in Job. God had confidence in Job. And really what happened, and some people have described it this way, it really kind of was a shock to me when I first read it, as this was some kind of cosmic wager, as though God was betting on Job and, and Satan was betting that Job would let God down. And we find out that as we follow the story that God believed in Job and had confidence in him and, and stood behind by that confidence, even though Job didn't know any of this was going on. And as far as we can tell from the story, as the Bible gives it to us, Job never knew. He never knew about the encounter between God and Satan, but Job remained faithful. Well, one of the things that we learn from the story of Job, and it takes up the huge portion of the book of Job, if you look at it, and then you decide to read the entire book of Job, you'll discover that, that he had conversations with his friends, or his comforters, we sometimes say. And, and one of the things that his friends said to him, and this is something I think we need to, we need to deal with head on, straight up, and it's not easy, but I believe it's liberating, and it's helped me a lot. You see, as Job's friends said to Job, Job, you're suffering all this pain, all these losses, your family's dead, your children are dead, you've lost all your livestock, your servants. Job, the reason must be because you sinned. And, and they went round and round on this a little bit. And, and of course, we know that, that um, God had said Job was blameless, right? But they were convinced it had to have been Job's fault because they were following that same assumption that you and I tend to follow, that God is fair. And as we judge fairness, there was no other conclusion than Job must be guilty of sin. That's what these friends said to him. But it's very clear from the story of Job that that was not true. Job was not guilty. God said he was blameless. And, and we, need to, we need to come straight head up on that kind of thinking because it leads to some, some errors that, that hurt people a lot. I've heard it taught. I've heard it said loudly and proudly, you might say, that, that people who are not healed when they ask God to heal their illnesses or take away their pain, 
They aren't healed because they just don't have enough faith. And they're told that if you have enough faith, God will heal you. Well, Job had plenty of faith, but he still suffered. So it can't be true that God makes his decisions about how the world unfolds in our lives or around us based upon how much faith we have or if we have faith. It's not that at all. Uh, This puts a huge burden of, of, uh, what should I say, Uh, weight of of sin, maybe, maybe other kind, you might describe it differently. But when someone is is told that you're not healed or your loved one is not healed because you don't have enough faith, it's, it's a terrible burden to put on someone. And that just simply isn't what the Bible teaches. It wasn't true in Job's situation. It's not true in our situations. So we need to come face to face with, with that whole concept of Job's friends tried to, to work with him and say, well, it had to be because you're guilty. And they had other conversations, but, but that's at the heart of it. And that's what really, I think, speaks to us, that, that we can be blameless and still through, go through hard times. Well, let's talk a little bit now about God's response to Job, because in the end, they hashed it out and they came to a conclusion. Well, how should I say they came to God's conclusion and God said two very important things to Job. Uh, There's a lot more involved conversation. You understand that. But essentially, God said to Job a couple of things. First, he said to Job, you are not in any position to understand, to talk to me about that which is fair and that which is unfair. You have limited perspective, Job. In in other words, and, and it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I think it really helps. In other words, God said to Job, Job, I'm God and you are not. Now, that's that's a hard thing kind of to hear because people say, well, how can you just kind of hide behind that? Well, I don't think God hid behind it. I think what he was explaining to Job is that there's so much complexity in the world, in the universe, that Job just can't possibly understand everything. And of course, Job didn't understand everything. He didn't understand that God was rooting for him, that God was counting on him, that God was using Job to prove to Satan something very important about people who were faithful to him. But it's true, we don't have the perspective that God has. And it's true that sometimes when we think bad things have happened to us and someone has done us wrong, that we are innocent and they are guilty and God just needs to go get them and straighten it out. Well, there might be more to that than we allow ourselves to think. You you ever thought about that? You know, we want to, we want to blame someone else. We want to point fingers at something else and absolve ourselves of all responsibility. Well, truth be told, we got to be careful about that because, well, we sometimes contribute to things and we just got to face up to that reality that we have limited perspective and our perspective is blinded sometimes by our wishes and our efforts to explain things away. So kind of comes down to God saying to Job, look, Job, you really don't have any basis upon which to talk about fairness or cry out to me about all of this. You have limited perspective. Really, then God says to Job, you need to trust me. I've I've got all of this, and you need to trust me. And as I've said, and then you heard me say earlier, at the end of time, one day, God is going to make all of the wrong things right. And we can trust him to do that. And, And I remind myself of that. You should remind yourself of that. That's great confidence that God knows what he's doing, and and we can trust him. 
So, so how do we deal with the things that happen in life? And I was thinking about that. And there are a few things that I come across every now and then that make me pause and consider what, what's really going on. I don't always know. I can't tell for sure. I just listen to what, what I have uh, access to or what's reported or what I hear someone say, but how do we deal with life? Well, I've heard it more than once and I'm not throwing stones at, at these guys, but I've heard injured football players who maybe have been injured and they're, they're out for the season or they're going to miss several games. And, uh, it could be a number of different circumstances that might happen to them, but I have heard a number of them say, well, God has a plan. Well, Hmm. I, I guess that's true. God does have plans. He kind of knows what he's doing. Um, but I was thinking about that a little bit more when I'd hear them say that. And, and, uh, it, in one way, and I don't know if they all mean this, so understand that, but in one way, aren't they sort of implying that, that God was responsible for their injury? God has a plan for them to get injured, but then to, to rehab and come back and play again. Well, I, I just can't go down that road to say that God is the, is the cause of the bad things that happen to us. I don't see a good God being behind that sort of thing. And so I, sometimes I want to say to those guys, Hey, Hey men, Hey, hold on. Maybe you got hurt because football is a risky sport and people get hurt playing football. You know, sometimes we need, kind of need to have a little reality check and maybe God needs to help us have a reality check on some of those kind of things too. And, and I came across another thing and I, if you don't like football, you're kind of going to be annoyed. Why am I talking about footballish stuff? But, but I came across an article that talked about the New Orleans Saints and their ownership. A couple of years ago, 1985, I guess it was, been a while ago, uh, Tom Benson bought the Saints and he died. He died a couple of years later. And, and his will gave his team to his wife, Gail, she inherited the, the saints. And so in all those kinds of enterprises, they have succession plans. So Tom bought the saints. And when he died some years later, then he gave the team to his wife. And now she has to have a succession plan so that everybody knows what's going to happen to the team. Cause it's a, it's a huge business and lots of people have a stake in it. And so they have announced that she has a succession plan. And when she dies, the saints are going to be sold and the money given to local charities. Well, that's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. All of the money that will result from the sale of that football team will be given to local charities in that area. And Gail explained it this way. She says, I can't take it with me. God gives us gifts. And this is a gift. I am a steward for this and we help other people with it. My wish is to scatter all the good and gifts that God and Tom have given me to this city and community. So she's had to come to that conclusion. Her husband died in, in 2018, just a couple years ago. He'd owned the team since uh, 1985. And now she's made the decision that, that the team will be sold when she dies and all of the money will be given away to local charities. And she gives God credit. God gives us gifts. This is a gift. And she wants to be a good steward and let the community benefit from that. And so they have to work all the details out of that. And, and there are a number of details, but at least they have a plan. And, and apparently everybody is approving of that plan. 
but I happened to look a little farther when I saw that article and, and I saw the, one of the comments that was uh, on at the uh, website where I read the report. And one of the commenters said this, one might question why God gives one so many gifts while bestowing so many others with none. Not a thing religious people like to think about, I'm sure, because common sense would tell you if God actually existed, he wouldn't pick and choose who he blessed. Well, I thought that was real interesting because I've been thinking about this business of the story of Job. And, and one of the things that, that comes out to me is uh, I get the sense that this gentleman, and I'm assuming it's a man, I could be a woman, I, I don't know from the, from the comment online, but this person anyway, seems to have some bitterness about this. And, um, you know, maybe all of us need to kind of guard ourselves against a little bit of bitterness. And, and he seems to want to have it both ways. He, he says at the beginning, one might question why God gives uh, as though he assumes God exists because God is picking and choosing rather arbitrarily. But then he goes on to say, if God actually existed as though he doesn't believe God exists. So so I want to say to him, does God exist or does God not exist? You can't really have it both ways. We need to think about this a little bit better. And then he says, I'm sure because common sense would tell you if God actually existed, he wouldn't pick and choose who he blessed. Ah, there we go again. His sense of fairness. He appeals to common sense that he has the sense of fairness. Now, isn't that the mistake so many of us make? And so let's be respectful. Let's be polite. Let's give grace to this person who made the comment, but let's also acknowledge that this idea of fairness bites us all. And the other thing that's very interesting is he makes no reference to, to the fact that, that all of the proceeds of this team, which will be huge numbers, will be given away. Makes no reference to that. So how do we deal with life and the things that go on? And how do we think about things? Well, I want to introduce you to Texas Senator Brian Birdwell. I have not met Senator Birdwell. I've heard his story, read about it a little bit. He was the only survivor of the E-ring at the Pentagon when the attack took place on 9-11. His desk was four windows from where the building shears off, and, and he barely escaped being right in the center of that impact. He was just steps from where the plane impacted the building, and he was badly burned I believe the story is over 60% of his body. He expected to die, suffered terrible burn injuries. He said, as bad as the burn injuries are, the medical treatment is worse. Uh, if you know anything about burn injuries, you know it, was a, it had to have been a terrible ordeal. So how do you make sense of someone who just happened to be at the wrong place when that happened and suffered greatly for it? Well, he said some interesting things. He said, Every scar that I wear, both physically and emotionally, that is the price of our national and earthly freedom. And he goes on to, to compare the scars that he bears for freedom to the scars that the Lord bears on his body to remind us of our eternal freedom. So he makes sense of that. He says, freedom matters and earthly freedom and, of course, freedom of the soul. And he says it's important for us to remember these kinds of sufferings and, and what we've endured and, and what they're for. He went through this unimaginable suffering, but he realized that, that there's, there are things that, that are so important. And if you go through them, well, you just have to go through them and get through them. That's, that's all. And, and, and he 
kind of summed it up this way. In his words, not mine, whatever the suffering may be, the Lord is the one who carries us through that suffering. He made another statement. All of that suffering, every scar that I bear, is worth the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. See, he was a lieutenant colonel. He was in the military. He understood that you put yourself in harm's way, and he understood that, that there was meaning out of his suffering. And he wouldn't have chosen to go through that. I don't think anybody would. But he understood that there was, there was reasons behind that, and, and he could make sense of it. And, and it was worth something. Uh, that's a strong statement from someone who suffered so terribly, who almost died, whose wife and son were almost left without him. But, but he could make sense of that, and he could make meaning out of it. And, you know, our, our pain, we can make meaning out of that, too, if we, if we ask God to give us his perspective. Because, remember, God said to Job, and he says to us, careful, you really don't have any, any place to stand on this. You really don't understand well enough. You can trust me, and we can. Many years ago, I was the minister of music. We don't call music leaders these days ministers of music, but we did in those days. I was the minister of music at a church in Oklahoma, Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And so it was my responsibility to choose music for, for uses in the services and, and music that the choir would learn and sing because I, I conducted the choir. Do you remember choirs? We used to have those in church. We don't so much anymore. Things change. But anyway, I was reviewing a whole bunch of things, and I regularly had a lot of, a lot of music to go through. And I came across a song that, that uh, had a real appeal to me. And uh, I liked the melody. I, I was intrigued by the, the lyrics. And it's important to evaluate carefully because you can only use a few songs. You can't use near as many as come, as come across your desk or as you might want to. And, and this song, it, it seemed to me that there was something right about it, but, but I wasn't quite sure. The chorus is what really got my attention. And the chorus was this, when answers aren't enough, there is Jesus. He is more than just an answer to your prayer, and your heart will find a safe and peaceful refuge. When answers aren't enough, he is there. And, and I thought about that for a while, and, and I wasn't quite certain about that. And I thought, well, you know, poets are poets, but I don't, I don't want to suggest something that isn't true because I knew in my own life that it hadn't been that many years before that, that, that I'd needed answers. I'd needed some explanations. I needed some understanding of things because like all of us, we wrestle with those things. And sometimes we go through periods of time where we question what is true and what isn't true. Should I believe what the Bible says? Uh, can I have confidence in God? And, and I'd wrestled with that, and I'd gotten some good answers that, that were really very satisfying to me and helped me through that. I was very grateful. So when I saw the phrase, when answers aren't enough, that got my attention because answers had been enough for me. And I thought, now, how can, how can I reconcile that? When answers aren't enough, there is Jesus. So I went to the pastor. I, I knew it would ultimately come down to him deciding if there was some question about it, and and in my youth and, and unfamiliarity, I just was uncertain. So I, I took it to him and I asked him what he thought is, I said, is this right? Would you agree with this? And he looked at it 
And as I recall, and it may have taken longer than this, but as I recall, it didn't take him long at all to recognize that, yes, this is right. And now as I've reflected on this, and I have never forgotten that over the years, I, I agree completely with him. You know, sometimes we don't get the answers we want, particularly when we ask why. The Bible does not give us satisfying answers for the question of why. It'll explain things and help us make meaning out of them. It will help us understand to what end. But I cannot tell you why certain things happen, and the Bible doesn't seem to be interested in telling us that either. But this simple idea, when answers aren't enough, there is Jesus, goes a long way toward helping me, a long way toward helping me. Somewhere in that time period, and I, don't, I think it was after this incident, I and my family made the long trip from where we lived to where my parents lived, and my father met me almost at the door. It wasn't quite that quickly, but but he and I talked about books a lot because we were both readers and thinkers about things. And he, he said to me, here's this book that I've gotten. You need to read it while you're here. You can't take it with you. <laughs> it was that important to him. He wasn't going to let me have it to take with me. I'd have to get my own copy. And the title of the book was Disappointment with God. And he had never said that to me uh, about a book before. We had talked about good books and ideas and things like that. But he said, this book, you need to read this. And the title, Disappointment with God, Three Questions No One Asks Aloud, is written by a man named Philip Yancey, a writer whose work I've come to respect a great deal. And, and you might like his writing, too. I, I would encourage you to get the book, Disappointment with God, if you struggle with these kind of things, because he asks three questions, and it helps unpack this. And the questions he tries to answer are, is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? And he gives real-life stories of real-life people who wrestle with really difficult circumstances, and he helps us understand the way through that. And, and he helps me understand even better why when answers aren't enough, there is Jesus. You see, that's God's final answer. Jesus is God's final answer. And this may be the most important part of what we're thinking through today. You see, the Bible teaches us there's no dispute among people that understand the Bible, that Jesus is presented to us as an innocent, blameless man. Sounds a little bit like Job, doesn't it? Well, except that there's one more thing. Jesus never sinned. And that's important. See, Job was blameless, clearly says that in, in the Bible. And Jesus was innocent and blameless, but it goes on to say, Jesus never sinned, the only person that never sinned. And so we start with Jesus when we try to make sense of things, because Jesus is an answer to us. Jesus, who never sinned, became sin for us. He suffered for our sin. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he died for sin. Sometimes we say that God placed the sin of the world on Jesus, and that's well said. Another way to think of it is that God took the sin of the world on himself in the person of Jesus, for Jesus was God, and Jesus was a person. So here's an innocent, blameless man who never sinned, who became sin for us, who took the sin of the world on himself and died. You can't call that fair by any measure, can you? You can't begin to say that that's fair, that he had to do that. 
when he had never sinned. And, and look at some of us. Uh, I'm looking in the mirror too, by the way. Look at some of the things that we've done. But it wasn't fair to Jesus. So you talk about fairness, and Jesus is God's final answer to that fairness. You see, it wasn't fair, but God, in the person of Jesus, took sin on himself to accomplish God's justice because sin needed atoning. Someone needed to pay the price of sin, and only Jesus could do that. And he did it willingly. And Jesus proved by taking that sin on himself, Jesus proved that we can trust him, that we can trust God. Because here's someone who had no responsibility for any of the sin, but he took it all on himself so that we wouldn't have to. He suffered in our place so that we could be liberated. You see, you may not be able to wrap your head around every unfair thing that's happened to you or every painful thing you experience, but you can wrap your head around Jesus. And when answers aren't enough, he is there. And I want to encourage you to trust him. He is trustworthy. Because we are the kind of people that want to have faith. And we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And there is a God who is trustworthy because he understands our situation. He knew what we needed, and he took on himself the suffering for our sin. Take heart. When answers aren't enough, there is Jesus. Walk with him this week. We'll be back next week, and we're going to go another step forward in having absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye.